Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. So welcome back to the Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Nick Carman, and this evening I'm joined by Sunil Gomez, Senior Vice President for the King of Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, former Chief Exec of Dubai's Gemini Properties, and the former Chief Development Officer for Nikhil's Palm Jumeirah. So Sunil, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Nick. So let's get us started, Sunil. It's going to be, I warn our, our listeners now, a true sort of globe-trotting story. So tell us where Chapter 1 begins. I would have to say Chapter 1 begins really graduating from university, University of the West of England uh, near Bristol, and moving to London. I was very fortuitous enough to get a job with a company called Kumagai Gumi, which was a large real estate developer from Japan who had just entered the London market. And I was able to secure an apprenticeship, like a, a five-year real estate development apprenticeship with Kumagaigumi in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So an unusual start then for your, your typical uh, real estate sort of graduate. Well, yes. I mean, I, you know, I, I was sort of on the charter surveyor path, which I did actually achieve during my time at Kumagai. But I was always a very fanatically interested in monopoly from a very young age and i think it inspired me to be a real estate developer i just enjoyed playing it as a with family friends and everything else and the result of that was the interest the precipitous for the interest in real estate development and i just always knew I, that's what i wanted to do i didn't want to be a chartered surveyor in the traditional sense i didn't want to be a quantity surveyor i didn't want to be a valuer i wanted to be a real estate developer so, so the first question then off the bat is given these guys were a Japanese real estate developer, you know, what, was the, what was the most important lesson you think you learned to that chapter? I think the most important thing that came out of uh, Kumagai Gumi was the cultural rev- uh, relevance in terms of respect. I mean, the Japanese were very, very much about respect. Uh, the way you operated, the way you ran the business, uh, the way the business was structured, the way the business delivered. And that was all concentrically focused on the respect structure that existed. And I had to learn that, you know, very, very quickly because I was a bit of a, a cocky little upstart from West London at a comprehensive school. So had to change my attitude a little bit if I wanted to progress in the Kumagai environment. But it was just a phenomenal time. I mean, Kumagai Gumi in the late 1980s was one of the largest foreign investors in the United Kingdom. Uh, specifically in and around London, but with other developments as well. So it was just a great time to have a front seat of foreign investment in the United Kingdom and then seeing the development that went on the back of that from a very young age. Well, let's, don't let me interrupt now. Let's, um, uh, now we're rocking and rolling. Where does, um, what happens after that earliest phase? Where do we go there? I mean, Kumagai Gumi came to the UK in the 80s. I got there in the late 80s. Uh, as you were probably well aware, I think you're old enough to remember that there was an economic downturn and a recession at the end of the 1980s and early 1990s. So I did about five years at Kumagai. But then also that was quite fashionable in the late 80s and early 90s was to go off and to do an MBA. And I applied and I did my GMAT and I was you know, very keen to go off and do an MBA in the USA like most people on that genre and that age group. Uh, but my Japanese boss was quite insistent that I didn't really need to do the MBA because the MBAs tended to be heavily focused on 
finance and analytical. Uh, and, you know, the Japanese were very, very good at that, had a very good training. So they suggested that being British and being monolinguistic, that I go off and learn a language. And I thought, well, they meant Japanese. Uh, and they said, no, no, go and learn something else. Uh, go and learn Spanish. And I said, why Spanish? And they said, well, it's the world's widely, most widely spoken language after English. So I did that. I, I actually uh, subscribed to university, the University of Zaragoza, which is in northern Spain, in order to do a one-year diploma in uh, learning the Spanish language with a focus on Spanish literature. And I did that, and it was just, just a, the most remarkable year of my life uh, at, at that point in time. I mean, it was just wonderful living in a foreign country, meeting lots and lots of people that you would never have met in London, uh, living a very, very different life, going back to being a student, which obviously I thoroughly enjoyed, as most people do. But the best part about that was that, you know, I thought I was going to go back to London and I was going to get a great job in London because I'd be this sort of uh, being able to speak two languages. But as it happened, as chance favoured me, I actually got a job offer working for a company in the Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean uh, because there was an opportunity for a Spanish-speaking charter surveyor working with a local consultancy practice. And so I took that. And I thought I'd go there for a couple of years and, and move back to London. But that never happened either. Now, this, this is the, the second uh, chapter, second sort of move in your career. So, and, and once more, this is an, an unusual, or at least an, a, a, the path sort of least trodden. Was this a conscious decision? <laughs> uh, not in my mind. I can't say it was, it was, I'd never heard of the Turks and Caicos Islands when someone came knocking on my door. I didn't know where it was on the map. I didn't understand what they did there. Um, but the Turks and Caicos Islands was, in fact, a British protectorate uh, run by the British government. It's governed by British laws, and a lot of the companies working there are actually English or British. So a lot of the recruitment happens in the United Kingdom. A lot of the lawyers are there. Uh, for those that don't know, it's very similar to the more uh, the better-known Cayman Islands. So what happened was I got offered a job there. I moved there, and the Turks and Caicos was going through this incredible change because it was on the precipitous of its own growth. So when I actually, when I moved down there, there were three restaurants on the island that you would go out and dinner, have dinner at. Uh, now there must be hundreds. But back then there were literally three restaurants on the island. It was a very small island. But its proximity to the USA, which was 115 minutes from Miami, meant that it was a huge potential growth market as a tourist market for Americans and Canadians. And so the result of that was America was going through its own economic growth now, and the Americans were traveling more, proximity to the Caribbean, sort of small, underdiscovered island, and there's a real opportunity to do hospitality development. So the primary real estate development market was led by hospitality to do resort development and hotel development. And those were the key drivers in real estate. And that allowed me as a real estate developer, but from London that specified that specifically trained in offices and office parks and retail to sort of learn a new asset class. And that was purely by chance. I would admit that it's not something that I trained to do. So you got to learn a new asset class. You got to learn a new style of development. You got to look at things that are very different, a new different financial model, a new different designs, 
Uh, and that was an interesting time as well. But that was also combined with the opportunity because the Turks and Caicos were strategically located for foreign funding. And what that meant was the Caribbean and the South America was looking to be very, very interesting for pension fund money coming out of the United Kingdom, coming out of Germany, coming out of Scandinavia, France and Spain. Cuba, of course, was a, a big opportunity market. Castro was still around at the time, but he was looking at opening up the markets to pension fund money because they were long-term players, long-term investors. And uh, they, were, they needed someone to park their money to be safe before they invested it into Cuba. That was the Turks and Caicos Islands. And obviously, it was an opportunity for me being the Spanish-speaking surveyor to go to Cuba on a regular basis and look at uh, development opportunities. And again, fortuitously, that was hospitality development that they wanted to do. So it was, you know, really quite lucky at the time. Unfortunately, Castro wanted certain terms and conditions but weren't available at the time to the foreign investors, though he did try and look at a number of deals over a number of years. We did close one hotel transaction in Baradero. But also simultaneously at the time, I was quite fortunate that a lot of American money was financing hospitality development in the Caribbean and the Turks and Caicos Islands. And one of those was a company called GE Capital, which was the financing arm of General Electric and had a really large real estate portfolio. And again, just one of those lucky things that came along they offered me an opportunity to move down to the uh, to Argentina, to Buenos Aires. Again, because I was Spanish speaking, uh, it was an opportunity. They knew me quite well. They knew my track record. And that created a whole new market to move to Latin America, which I did. Got on the plane and moved down there. Well, I won't, I, um, I won't ask you um, again about what the, because you're once more sort of setting a real trend here, sort of about, about these being sort of atypical moves. But tell us a bit more about sort of what, what you learned then in this chapter. So moving to Argentina was obviously very, very different to living in the Caribbean in Cuba. Structurally, it was very different because South America itself, or what was then known as the Southern Colonies, was substantially different to anything that I had ever experienced before in my life. But not only that, Argentina is very different to Brazil, which is very different to Chile, which is very different to the other countries in South America. So when doing business uh, in these local markets, each local market is substantially different to its next door neighbor. That would be the first point. I think the second point was that historically, most of my career had been working with institutional investors and institutional clients and institutional corporates. Whereas working in South America, a lot of the businesses that we were dealing with were very family-orientated businesses. So they were large family conglomerates. You were dealing with the father and then the children. And that was a very, very different way of doing business. And then you had the generation gap between the father and the children. You found that the fathers were very traditional in the mechanisms of financing, very traditional in the ways they developed, whereas the children had obviously been schooled uh, the wealthy families have obviously sent their children to be schooled in the USA. They got their MBAs from the USA. They've gone to school in the UK and further afield. And they've come back with all their newfound knowledge that they've learned in these other countries. And they wanted to change the way the businesses were run. So, and they were probably my age, maybe a little bit older, but they were very different in their mindset to the parents. So you had to find the balance in dealing with the children as well as the families themselves and the and the, the fathers who 
had built these businesses up over many, many years. So that was a very interesting time and a very interesting place. Argentina at the time was also an incredibly interesting place to be, specifically because at the time the peso, the Argentine peso, was at one-to-one to the US dollar. And now it's probably at about 120. Haven't looked for a couple of years, but the last time I checked, the devaluation of the Argentine peso uh, has been substantial. So we were actually there in a very stable economic time. It was a fun time to be living in Latin America. Unfortunately, Latin America has been pretty unstable in the last 20 years. So happy to have moved on. And what about where did that move take you to? Well, because of the relationship between Latin America and Europe, specifically Spain and Portugal, I was offered an opportunity through one of the families who had contacts in Barcelona. So by now I was fluent in Spanish. I was fluent, obviously fluent in English. I had the opportunity to move to Barcelona, uh, which is my favorite city in the world. So uh, I lived there for a number of years working with a predominantly large family uh, real estate developer, uh, looking at opportunities for development. And just coincidentally, again, Spain was now on the precipitous of its own uh, economic boom. And again, it was pension fund money coming out of the UK, Scandinavia, Germany, uh, who was looking at investing in Spain. By now, I was fluent in Spanish and I had the opportunity to learn Catalan as well. And it was just a great time to have lived in Latin, uh, sorry, lived in Barcelona. Barcelona was going through its economic boom. It was the powerhouse for the Spanish economy. Uh, it had you know, capitalized very successfully since its 1992 Olympic bid. So people may remember the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, where they literally redeveloped the entire waterfront, put beaches in there, developed a whole new social housing infrastructure, a whole new food and beverage offering. And really now they were capitalizing and moving that forward. Also, simultaneously, there was a lot of new airlines flying into Spain itself. So you had EasyJet had formed about the same time, a couple of years earlier. You had Ryanair now flying in there. You had some of the German airlines, Flywings flying in there now. Too. They, the, it was just a, a very nice confluence of all these infrastructure, planning, real estate, economic policies that were being assisted out of the European Union. I think it was then called the European Bank of Reconstruction that allowed Spain and Portugal to, to you know, experience this incredible real estate boom. And being in Barcelona doing that was just a remarkable you know, time of my life. You had it going on in Madrid. You had it going on in Valencia. You had it going on in Marbella. So as a, you know, a, a young man in my mid-30s to be getting on a plane once a week and flying somewhere else in Spain or Portugal looking at real estate development opportunities was just a remarkable, remarkable time. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, so, uh, and I'll ask this in two parts, I think. I'll ask you, I'll ask you now, and then I'll probably ask you a bit later, later on in the, um, uh, in the episode. Given what you've achieved... Um, uh, in each of these these positions, in in very different uh, countries, sometimes sort of um, uh, languages. Why why did you choose to to move the locations? Why did you choose to move the geographies rather than rather than continue in in those in those same um, uh, environments? I I think partly it's my own personal DNA. Um, past, partly, I think it was just the opportunities that have come naturally to me as a result of these events. So the economic collapse in Latin America 
specifically, uh, you know, and having had, you know, good economic grounding with GE Capital and GE Capital was going to pull out of Latin America, they had a lot more, uh, a lot older, a lot brighter people sitting on the boards that managed the investments at the time who said, no, we want to, we want to move away from Latin America. It's not going to recover for a good 10 years. And in fact, it's been 20 years and Latin America still hasn't recovered. So I moved because of certain circumstances that were outside of my control, but I was able to take those circumstances and use it to my advantage. Secondly, I've just always enjoyed travel. I've, you know, from a very young age, my father worked for an airline. I got what was then called an ID90 ticket, which still exists these days, which is family members of airlines can travel on a 90% discounted plane ticket on standby. So from a very young age, I started to take these tickets and use it to travel and fly around um, the world and started to explore. I mean, I'm 56 years old now and I've visited 141 countries. I've actually got an Excel spreadsheet that lists it all. That is incredible. Um, but not only that, I've now lived, I think, about 13 or 14 different locations around the world. So, you know, I think I learned Catalan. I really enjoyed my time in Barcelona. I picked up a new couple of new hobbies along the way that I developed and evolved since Argentina, which was I spent a lot of time, you know, in Argentina riding horses, learned to play polo, moved to Barcelona. Barcelona had horses, but it was very much as about... Uh, 500 male tennis players learning to be a professional tennis player at any point in time in Barcelona. And I just, you know, made a friend who was a professional tennis coach and learned to play tennis. So all these sort of things just allow you to experience the life and culture in a different place. And as much as I love Barcelona and it's my retirement plan or was my retirement plan pre-Rexit, you know, it was a great time to do it and be there. But whilst I was there, there was another region of the world that was just on a precipitous of its own economic boom, and that was Dubai. And as a result of that, I had the same headhunter that called me up to move me from Latin America towards uh, Europe, now calling me up four or five years later and say, hey, we think there's a boom that's just about to kick off in a place called Dubai. Are you interested? And I wasn't interested at all. I was very happy living in Barcelona. But I did fly over for an interview. There was a, a small startup company called Nikhil. I interviewed for a job at Nikhil. I wasn't interested in the offer or interested in the role that they offered me. But then they offered me a tax-free salary and I compare that to my life in Barcelona and the opportunity that it was going to create. And I said, you know what, I'll go there for two years, come back and just buy a bigger house. The reality was I moved to Dubai. The challenges were immense. And there was so much learning and so much fun to be had in it. 20 years later, I'm still in the Middle East. So I moved to Dubai. Um, it was well before the economic boom that happened in sort of seven and eight, six, latter end of six, 2006 and then seven and eight. I moved back there in about 2003. And it was two years after 9-11. So the Middle East wasn't high on anyone's agenda to move to. But I was actually impressed with Nikhil. They're a small startup business, and they had this crazy ambition to do this project called Palm Jumeirah, uh, which people, you know, most people have heard of by now 20 years later. And it was so ambitious. It was so incredibly ambitious. You couldn't help but just want to try and be part of it. Even if you tried and failed, even though failure, we were told, was not an option, even if you tried and failed, I 
my thinking at the time was, you know, let's just go for it. Um, Dubai was so different than anything else I'd ever experienced. I mean, Latin America, Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires was considered the Paris of Latin America, its influences, its culture, its people, very Spanish, very European. Dubai was just culturally very different. Now, one plus that I did have going for me was a Brit, was that, you know, the UAE prior to 1971 or 73 formation was a British protectorate after the Second World War. So again, the laws were very English. They understood what a chartered surveyor was. They, they followed the processes that the RICS already had a presence there. So the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors. So it was quite fortuitous in that regard. But the, it was just the challenges of the project and the challenges that, 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 that we were facing. And there were two major real estate developers at the time. There was Nikhil and there was Imar. I, I worked for Nikhil. We were doing Palm Jumeirah. And Emar were doing focusing on downtown Dubai and doing Burj Khalifa, which is the current world's tallest tower. Palm Jumeirah. So the reason, part of the reasons why Dubai wanted to develop Palm Jumeirah was two reasons really. Uh, one was fundamentally because Dubai would lack coastline. So it was a very very short coastline. Dubai is one of the seven Emirates of the United Arab Emirates, but Dubai has one of the shortest coastlines. So they wanted to extend the coastline. The result of that was developing a project that could create a lot of coastline because coastline adds value for hotels, residential development, et cetera, et cetera. That would be the, the first reason. The second reason was Dubai knew its oil was running out and it knew it didn't have the 100-year supply that places like Abu Dhabi had. So they knew they had to focus on something different and they were focusing on offshore banking and on one side of it, but there was also the tourism side of it and the tourism was hospitality. And by now purely by chance, something that I never planned. I was now becoming a bit of a hospitality expert in development from my time in the Turks and Caicos Islands, from my time in Latin America. So, but not only that, there was a lot of land reclamation. And coincidentally, when I was in the Turks and Caicos Islands, I had to do some reclamation projects because the Caribbean was eroding. So I not only did I have the financial skills, the development skills, the hospitality skills, but I rarely had a rare skill in land reclamation. So I got the job and joined Nikhil, and it was just an extraordinary time. Uh, it was a lot of hard work, culturally very different, because now you're working in a Muslim culture. You're not working in a Christian culture. You're working in an environment where the Emiratis, who are extraordinarily bright and very well educated, had all the senior posts. You were reporting into their structure. But you constantly, every single day, having to think outside the box and think differently. No one's, I mean, the Dutch have done a lot of land reclamation, same as the Chinese in Hong Kong, but that was just very standard to amplify their land mass, which is very flat, and to make sure it, most of it was done for shipping. Here we were building an island, the shape of a palm tree that had never been done before testing and trying new technologies to get this perfect shape of a palm that His Royal Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum Al Maktoum required. And we had to get it right first time. Not only that, we had a very, we were, the time pressure on us, I thought we would have 15, 20 years to do it. We were told five to seven max. So on a daily basis, you started work normally at about seven o'clock, dealing with general contractors, dealing with all the contractors into the site, go to the site, meet with the contractors, resolve what you needed to do, then come in, work to the office, 
work a full day in the office undertaking all the works related to designs, planning, uh, marketing, sales, all the aspects of real estate development, all the different phases and stages. And then in the evening, you were then finding yourself having to deal with the royal court, matters of the royal court in terms of presentations, how are we going to complete the project on time within budget, etc., etc. The result of that was just a very demanding uh, period of my life for 10 years. But also Nikhil went through this stratospheric growth. I think I was employee number 76 and at its peak, Nikhil was four and a half thousand people. Palm Jumeirah was so successful that we ended up doing Palm 2 and Palm 3. So you had Palm Deera and Palm Jumalali. So plus the growth of Dubai, the levers that the Dubai government, who did a phenomenal job putting in place. So you had the growth of Emirates Airlines, which was simultaneously planned. When I moved to Dubai, the average length of stay for anyone flying on an Emirates airline was 1.7 days. By the time I left, it was up to five and a half. So Emirates created this world-class airline that set a whole new benchmark in airline transportation that brought people to Dubai. And the result of that was we had to create these assets, these experiences for people to want to stay there. And if you look at Dubai now, seven days just is not enough to be in Dubai. The hotels, the restaurants, the offering, the museums, the cultural experiences, the water-based activities, the water-based sports, these sports activities, the growth, I mean, tennis player and the growth of tennis have absolutely exploded. Paddle now in the last couple of years has absolutely exploded in Dubai. So you've gone from this, I was able to see from in my time there from this nascent economy that was a petrodollar-based economy to move into a tourist-based economy in the period of about 10 years. That was really quite remarkable. But not only that, you had the explosion in the population as well, the explosion of the working population. So it wasn't now just Brits. It was the proximity to the Indian subcontinent, the proximity. We had a lot of Australians that now moved to Dubai. So you had this very, it was a great entrepot of these cultures that came to Dubai, this mix of cultures, these mix of experiences, a mix of languages that you are now having to do business with. And it was just a, a great time to have been there. Let me interrupt, Cyril, because, it, um, because it's interesting your perspective on this. You, just, you described an incredibly sort of complex layer upon layer upon layer of challenges and described it as, as great. To many people, that sounds terrifying in the sense of, you know, uh, your standard sort of real estate uh, individual knows all the challenges there are in terms of delivering a project, whether those be technical or um, or sort of local governance. You're mixing now this this into uh, incredibly sort of complex political, cultural, global ec- economics. What do you think? Ma- what do you think makes you unusual in the sense of that's that's what attracts you to these roles or these these challenges? Again, I think it's part of my DNA, but you have to be up for the challenge. I mean, when I left London back in the late 80s, early 90s, I just bought a brand new TV. And when I moved to Spain, I couldn't take my TV with me. And what that meant back in the day was I couldn't afford to buy a new TV when I moved to Spain. So that meant I had to get out there and find other forms of activity to entertain myself after work. I haven't bought a TV since 1989. I mean, I know nowadays you can have all these iPads and all these other things, but my life has changed substantially. I'm now probably fluent in five languages. I play a lot of different sports that I probably wouldn't have done in London. 
So I think the attraction to me of the expat life has meant that I've grown a lot differently than I would have done if I'd, long, I'd stayed in the UK and stayed in London, not only in my career, but also personally. I mean, I go back to London and, you know, it's very difficult to, you kind of see the world in a different light because you are multilingual now. So I, I can read fluently in Spanish, I can read in Catalan, I can read in French, I can read in Portuguese. That gives you a different perspective. It gives you a different respect for each other's cultures. The same sort of thing happened in Dubai because you had this mix of all these different cultures together. And you had to find your own way to, you had your own path in order to deal with all these different people, different cultures, understand their points of view differently in a different language. I mean, it was remarkable because we were dealing with Spanish architects, we were dealing with Latin American architects, we're dealing with German bankers. And you have to understand their, their, the nuances of their cultures in order to do, to do business with them. So it was an interesting time. In terms of the political layer, I mean, that was just uh, the country itself politically was changing as well. Sheikh Mohammed had just really come into power because his brother had died, I think, in 2006. And now he'd taken the reins on a more permanent basis. And he had to direct, you know, he was creating a legacy for a whole generation. And we and Nikhil, Imar, and the other developers had such an influence as to what that should look like. And that was just a remarkable time to have been there because, you know, a brick coming from London in Hounslow, you, you just don't get that opportunity. And here I was presenting to His Royal Highness uh, on, you know, the projects that were going to change the face of the country forever. So, so at this, this moment in time, I want to introduce a little bit of our research now, I, I must admit, I've spoke to a couple of different characters from your from your background, and I had a lot of, a lot of fun talking to these guys. Um, but they've they have they've definitely sort of given me an interesting perspective, and a perspective I must admit on a, on a place that, that I have, I have never worked. Now, the first the first topic was talking about just some of the personalities that you might have been working with, uh, and uh, they said their take on this was that often the C suite wanted people to use their smarts. To make the C-suite look good, and in that in that scenario, Sunil was an expert in in that scenario in that environment. Now, that is that's an, that's an interesting sort of uh, observation. I wanted to unpack that a little bit with you. Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, I think any C-suite always wants you know their staff working for them to make them look good, and you know Dubai or anybody else anywhere else was no different in that regard. But one of the things that I realized about being an expat, and I think it's really important to remember this, is that whenever you're an expat, you are a guest in someone else's country. You are there on a contract term, a fixed term contract of three years, five years, two years, whatever it may be. So you have an obligation, you know, part of it's fiduciary, but part of it is culturally as well. You know, most of the time my, my line management were senior Emiratis, now at senior Saudis. And, you know, you are a guest in their country. You are there as their employee, but you are there at their behest. And I've never had a problem with that. I think you have to take ego out of the equation when you come to a certain level of these roles. And in doing so, you just deliver a quality service as best as you possibly can. I, you know, you can't dress it up. You've got to, you know, I try and make things as binary as possible, though obviously there are shades of gray. But I think if you present it in a fair and equitable manner, people will see that you're just being honest and transparent. And I think that was my skill of anything else. 
in uh, presenting things in a, in a fair and equitable manner, being transparent so that people could see the, the truth and the reality of what you were saying. So the Palm is, is complete. It's live. It's delivered successfully. What comes next? Well, I think at, at that juncture, I mean, working for Nikhil as long as I did delivering a, a mega project of that size and magnitude, I, I, I found myself quite exhausted. Uh, I was very, very tired, had some good money in the bank. And strangely enough, I actually decided to go and take a sabbatical year. And I took a sabbatical year and went to live in France because now I decided for some unknown reason, to myself even, I decided that I want to learn French. So I moved to Aix-en-Provence and I took a year out and studied French literature and French poetry for a year in French, learning French simultaneously. And that was, again, it was a great year. It was a great recuperation, a great year of thinking. Um, decided whether I or to decide whether I wanted to go back to the Middle East or move back to Europe, and I decided that the challenges were were in the Middle East. So I jumped on a plane, I moved back to Dubai, and I I secured a position as a CEO for business in uh, Dubai. It was a very small business, but I got to be CEO. We were developing a number of uh, residential projects that were going very very well, and I was very very happy. And I had no plans to leave. I was thoroughly enjoying myself in Dubai, but as chance would have it, there was another country in the region, in the GCC region, that was on the precipitous of its economic boom. And I got a phone call very early on, probably four years ago now, to join uh, the public investment fund in Saudi Arabia. And I decided I wanted the change and the challenge. The projects and the ideas of what was seen to be happening just seemed to be larger, uh, bigger than Dubai, larger than Dubai, uh, and more challenging. And uh, I took, I took the leap of faith, and I really have had the best four years of my life. Well, don't leave us on that, um, Cliffhanger. So let's carry on. Tell us, tell us as to exactly why it was. Well, I mean, again, it comes to, as I said about South America, say Brazil being very different to Argentina, which is very different to Chile, uh, Saudi Arabia has been, is very, very different to uh, the United Arab Emirates and Dubai specifically. Uh, we have a crown prince who is just an absolute visionary who has now taken, you know, de facto manner, the reins of uh, moving the country to its next level. He's changed a number of rules and regulations and laws over the last few years. And what we're now seeing is this, you know, revered, well-respected global leader coming to the forefront. And it's his time now. And it's Saudi Arabia's time. And it's PIF's time. And to be sitting here where I sit on a daily basis, working with the Saudis, who are just the nicest, kindest, extraordinary, intelligent people who now developing not an emirate, but an entire country. And you'd be looking at a country of about 40 million people. And if you think about the UAE, the total seven emirates is less than 10, 10 million people. You've now got an even greater challenge. And the other thing in this challenge is that Saudi had been a very different country for the last 40 years for cultural and political reasons. And now it was going through this titanic shift. And to be part of that is just another part of my journey. I mean, I'm entering sort of, should we say, I'm, I'm now in my mid-50s, mid to late 50s, and I'm coming towards a different time of my career. But my time of my career in here now is the ability to influence, having got the experience of projects such as Palm Jumeirah, 
the ability to influence and experience how you develop. And we don't even have mega projects here. We have giga projects. And giga projects are more complicated, substantially larger environment, requiring greater investment. So you know, now we're doing those next level of projects, which are just huge. And unfortunately, as I said, or I may have mentioned previously, a lot of what I do is super sensitive. So I can't answer questions directly relating to PIF's projects that haven't been announced. But certainly the projects that are announced, we've got these brilliant CEOs involved. We've got projects such as John Pagano and his Red Sea project. We've got Jerry running Daria Gate. You've got Gauta Shistikal running CAF. And we've got these just incredible, incredible new cities and new developments being developed uh, to the next level. Innovative designs, innovative materials, innovative methods of financing, innovative methods of putting infrastructure in place. It's just a remarkable time to be in Saudi Arabia. So, so now let's let's change let's change gear a little bit. Let's start to look look forwards now. Given the story you told about someone who is constantly learning, begs the question: What's next for you to learn? Well, I think I need to answer that in two parts, really. I think the first part is Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is going through this incredible change. And I want to be part of that change because it is so exciting having a front seat of the change of Saudi Arabia. So I think, you know, the first part of the answer to that question would be the constant growth of Saudi Arabia that I would like to continue to participate in. The second part is, you know, at my age, I'm also, you know, thinking about retirement. And retirement for me is something that I actually, I want to plan, which I hadn't actually done for my career. My career came as a series of fortuitous events. But what's happened for me, as you well know, Nick, is, you know, being a Brit with a British passport, uh, Brexit changed everything. And although the original plan was to retire to Barcelona in Spain, I now have to look at the world larger and look at it through a new, new lens. And what that means is it's actually opened up a whole new lot of options that I actually can consider before. Might be, you know, maybe move to somewhere in Asia to retire to or part-time in Asia, part-time in Europe, part-time in the UK. It could be predominantly based over in Asia. There's great parts of the world. And one of the wonderful things you have with a British passport is you get to spend 90 days in any given country. You've also had new technology that's moved along over the years. So you can go and stay in an Airbnb in Thailand for six months, Vietnam for six months, Australia for six months, South Pacific for six months, and then move back to Europe and you know come back to London for the good weather and Wimbledon during the months of uh, July and August. So the options are, are there in that regard. I just haven't made that final decision. All right, so well, the next question then is, again, given the, the variety of roles you've had and all the different gears you've gone through, I'm curious to see how you tackle this. I'm always fascinated to find, you know, what drives my guests. And particularly for you, Sonal, I want to find out not only what drives you, but has it changed over time? I would definitely say it's changed. I mean, I think my early years, the 80s and the 90s, was all about personal growth, personal challenges, and wanting to learn so much, wanting to absorb so much, not just academically, but in business as well, but also my hobbies. I mean, I was a a hockey player at university. I was fanatical about hockey, but now I do so many different things. Uh, you know, having lived in Dubai with a large Russian community, I became a ballroom dancer. I used to compete around the world ballroom dancing. 
when I was in Barcelona, big tennis community, you know, I became fanatical about playing tennis. Um, so I've had all these different influences that have helped drive me in the past. Going forward now at a professional level, I think with 36, 37 years worth of experience, I'm in a very fortuitous position to share what I've learned and share my knowledge now within the PIF family and group of companies. So I'm part of a, a committee and part of a, a process in PIF where we have the PIF graduate training program. And I spent a lot of time imparting knowledge amongst the graduates as part of a structured training strategy. So that's also been very interesting. But PIF on the counterance has recently put me on a, an Institute of Directors board training course because I didn't even know there was a qualification to be a, a, a director. So now I'm, now I'm going through the PIF process because they want me to start sitting on those boards as we move forward or potentially to sit in those boards and committees on the multitude of PIF businesses. So that's also a driver. Um, but the third driver is also, you know, what's next in the, shall we say, the final stages of my life, which is sort of, I would consider that 60 to optimistically 80 or 90. So I think part of that is I, I've enjoyed my the time that I am at PF imparting knowledge, maybe, you know, part-time teacher, part-time lecturer, because I love sharing. Uh, but also maybe going off and doing my own business. Maybe that's consultancy related to real estate, or maybe it's just sitting on a beach in Barcelona. Uh, and I'm not quite sure where that might be. But the thing is, one of the things that I've learned in that process is don't judge too quickly and don't make too quick a decision because the world's constantly, constantly changing and you don't know where the next opportunity is coming from. All right then. So now, one more question for you. Given the last sort of four years, and and you you've referenced it a couple of times, the you know the challenges and the interest and how much enjoyment you've had for the last sort of four years whilst whilst working in Saudi Arabia, whilst working for for PIF, I wanted to ask then, you know, what's been the biggest lesson you've learned during that time? I would say the biggest lesson I've learned in that time is do not judge, do not prejudge, do not have any perceived, uh, preconceived ideas, places, people, countries. Saudi Arabia has just been a real eye-opener because I think a lot of people, including myself, have preconceived ideas about Saudi Arabia. In my career, that is 35, 36, 37 years, I've never been happier in any country than I have been in Saudi Arabia. And that is simply down to the people here. The people I've met and I've worked with for the last four years in Saudi Arabia, they're the brightest, they're the friendliest, they're the nicest, and they're the kindest. And, and, and it's those little things that make you want to go to work every day. And working with people like that who no one, absolutely no one I work with has an ego, absolutely no one. And it's just a great environment and a great place to work. Combine that with the challenges of developing the entire country is just it's just fabulous. And it's been a great four or five years. So I think to answer your question, don't prejudge anyone or anything. OK, so now, well, before we wrap up, I want to try something a little new for you. So in the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been asking our listeners to send me in voice notes um, for questions they want to ask to my guests. And I've got a really, really interesting one here for you. So I'd be fascinated to get your take on it, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Go right ahead. Hi, my name is Peter. 
And I wanted to ask today's guest, what behaviors or traits do they think good leaders should avoid? Uh, thank you very much for the question, Nick, and for the person who sent it in. I think his name was Peter. Uh, I think what I've learned over the years and at a personal level when it's happened to me and I've made sure I didn't do it to other people, I think the most important thing is, one, never get angry. There, there can be no circumstances ever where you shout, whether you scream, whether you act in a threatening manner. That, that is just a big no-no because the moment it happens, everybody will lose respect and it will take you a lifetime to, to get that respect back. Uh, you know, I used to deal with general contractors on site when I was on Palm Jumeirah. I've dealt with architects and engineers who I disagree with about their design intent and the design process. But you have to talk to everybody with absolute respect at all times. And it's so important because they will give you that respect back if you can create a coherent, logical argument as to why your position is that position. You may still differ, but you just don't lose your call. The moment you lose your call, the game's over. Well, so on that on that note, th I, uh, I'll thank you on behalf of uh, of Peter. Thank you for sending me a question. So, no, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, to answer that. Um, but our time's up today, I'm afraid. So, I need to to wrap up. So, thank you again for a, uh, for sharing that story. Thank you so much for taking us on this globe trotting career. Um, uh, I have no doubt our our audience will have really really enjoyed that. Thank you very much, Nick, and to the audience for the opportunity to be here today. Very much appreciated. <laughs>